Good morning. It's great to be here with you and to see all of you who are present with us. Some of you haven't been here since COVID hit. It's glad to have everybody back together now. Um, no, in all seriousness, uh, it's great to have all you guys visiting with us to witness all the cuteness. And we have made a spontaneous decision that we're going to start blessing these babies every week now. Um, so we look forward to seeing you next week. Uh, man, Charles and Martha, y'all bring people in. I started to walk up on stage just so I could feel included. <laughs> so happy that you all are here with us today. Uh, we know we have different backgrounds represented here, uh, but we uh, at this church really join with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we join together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. So we are joined with you today in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's begin with prayer. We thank you, our Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have gathered us together in the mighty name of Jesus. And even now, would you move among us and teach us. And may our collective entrance into your word here be an offering to you that's well-pleasing. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to talk about an invitation. You ever been invited to something and you didn't want to go? Everybody has that experience. My granddad used to say that he would rather go to a funeral than a wedding because he hated weddings. Uh, I knew he loved me when he came to my wedding. <laughs> you ever been invited to do something you don't want to do? Yeah? Oh, man, one of the ones for me, I'm just going to say it to them right now. My girls asked me to play this game called Candyland. Y'all heard that game? That's the worst game in the world. I, told, I think it was Donna I was telling that if somebody invented, invented a game and called it Pick Up Rocks, and you open up the box and you pour rocks on the floor and you pick them up and put them back in the box, I think I'd rather play Pick Up Rocks than play Candyland. That game, all you do is roll the dice, it's like you just move your piece. That's, that's it, see who wins. <laughs> it's terrible. I'm sorry, girls. I love you so much. But don't ever ask me to play that game. I'm not, I'm not playing that game with you ever again. I refuse. There's, life's too short to play Candyland. We have to do something else. You remember when you, we used to, now I don't know what your tradition is. My tradition, we used to sing invitation songs at the end of every sermon. And we called them invitation songs. Sort of our version of an altar call. And I remember one time uh, somebody led, oh, why not tonight on Sunday morning? <laughs> You may have had some awkward experiences with the invitation song yourself. But, but the invitation's great. But the question is, what are we being invited into? If you remember when you became a Christian, what was it that you were invited into? Now, I think for me, I would have had to say something like, well, it, it, was, it was good. You know, it was certainly better than the alternative. I was invited to get my sins forgiven. Thank God. But I did not receive the full invitation. Do you know what we're going to find today when we listen to Jesus? 
his invitation is an invitation into rest. Have you ever heard that? Did you know that the invitation that we should be giving to people who don't know Christ is to come and rest? Now, not always physical rest. It can be physical rest. But always a rest for your soul. That's the invitation that Jesus offered to people. We're going to get to that today. Now, uh, unfortunately, uh, I have been given sermons that are too long, unfortunately for you, and I'm trying to shorten that today. So we're going to, we're going to speed through part of this material and get to that invitation. Okay? For those of you who haven't been with us, we're teaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Let me just remind you briefly of what we're doing right now. We're in this section of Matthew where it's focused on proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. We dealt with the announcement, the introduction, repent because the kingdom of heaven is here. And then we got this uh, example of Jesus' teaching, Matthew 5 through 7. And then we've been in chapters 8 and 9, looking at the powerful works of Jesus there. We're transitioning today. Chapter 10 gets us to the second model of Jesus' teaching that Matthew gives. He gives us five large blocks of Jesus' teaching. This is the second one. We're skipping that. And the reason is that we're still waiting on Shivraj to get here. And uh, in faith, we're, we're hoping that uh, Shivraj will be here to, to give that sermon for us in this series on Matthew. So we're just holding off on it. But that's what's known as the missionary discourse. Jesus sending out his disciples to, to preach and teach. And he teaches them uh, in light of that. So today we're getting to chapters 11 to 12. And you start looking at Jesus' mighty works and what people are doing in response to them. And you know what you find? You find that most people don't see what's happening most people are not responding like we would think they should respond in the presence of Jesus. That's what you're going to find as you look through these, these responses to Jesus. It begins with his friend, his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, notice that term deeds because uh, that's going to really color the entire chapter that we're looking at, the deeds of Christ. He heard about these deeds and he sent word by his disciples. Now, John's in prison. Herod has thrown him in prison for, for uh, proclaiming judgment towards Herod. And, and John sends his disciples, and they say to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And you have to think about John's perspective here. John came preaching repentance, and he was preaching judgment. You remember that? Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He is going to get down to business with who's right and who's wrong. And he's going to expose those who are wrong. He's going to punish those who are wrong. That's what John was waiting to see happening. And he thought Jesus was the one, and yet that's not happening. In fact, John's in prison. And Herod's in power. Jesus hasn't toppled the powers. He hasn't brought judgment to those who are wicked. So he's, he's finally like, what, are you the one? Or have we missed it? And then look at Jesus' answer. He doesn't come out and directly say, I am the one. And he doesn't deny it either. But look at what he says. You go and tell John what you're looking at, what you're hearing and what you're seeing. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one. This is a beatitude. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Are you offended by Jesus? John was tempted to be offended by the powerful mercy that Jesus brought. John wanted judgment to come. 
And that's what he had been preaching. But when the Messiah he was waiting on came, he didn't bring judgment, not right then. There is a judgment to come, but that's not what Jesus came bringing. He said, I didn't come to the world to condemn the world. I came into the world to save the world. And that's what his people should be doing too. Wherever the kingdom of God is, there are powerful works of mercy and merciful works of power. And that's how we should recognize the kingdom. Jesus didn't have to argue. He didn't have to, to put up a, a, a syllogism and say, look, if you can figure this out and look at this scripture and that scripture, you'll see I'm the Messiah. He just said, look at it. In the words of Bruno Mars, don't believe me, just watch. You know, people didn't know I knew that song, did you? It's because I'm cool. People always tell me I'm not cool, and that's why I have to quote these songs every now and then. Prove I'm cool. Jesus said, watch. Watch, and you will see what the kingdom does. You'll see what the king does. And let me tell you, that's the, that's the message that the church should be bringing today. The church would be so much better off if we spend our time healing rather than arguing. And we have wasted so many lost people's time by arguing rather than healing. By showing condemnation rather than showing mercy. And when we have done that, we have left behind the pattern that Jesus gave us. And we're in the world to be Jesus to people. We're the body of Christ. And so we're the people who are showing works of mercy. And the church should be a place where people can look at it and say, that happened. And we don't know about all your reasons, all your arguments, but that happened and it didn't happen anywhere else. That guy was on drugs and he's not on drugs. That guy was addicted to porn and he's not addicted to porn. Come and see. Go tell them what you see in here. And it, yes, if we can go back to what Josh said last week. That person was crippled. And they're not crippled anymore. These kind of things happen through the people of Christ. And we see, we see these things happen. That, that person's, their marriage was going down the toilet. And they turned to Christ. And look, it's restored. It's the powerful works of mercy. That's how we identify the church. That's the first thing that we see here in this passage. Moving quickly on. Jesus takes, this advantage, takes advantage of this opportunity then to start talking about, about John. He, he asked the crowds. John was an incredible person, by the way. He's recorded in non-Christian history because of the impact he made on the world. They went away, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? That seems like a strange thing to say. Let, let me tell you what I think may be going on here. Very briefly. It's a contrast in royalty and prophets. And King Herod, who's put John in prison, had a coin. And on that coin, you know, back then they would print coins that would have the, the emperor or the king or whoever on, on the, with their picture would be on there. But, but he had a coin with a reed on it, representing him. And so I think this may be all tied to, to this contrast with, with Herod and John. You didn't go out to see a reed shaken by the wind like on those coins. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? <laughs> no, as they call him on the chosen, Creepy John. <laughs> he wasn't a man dressed in soft clothing. 
Well, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Okay? John wasn't a king. He wasn't royalty. He was a prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I, will, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. This is what they were looking for, the prophet who was going to prepare the way before the Lord came through his Messiah. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, now get this, anybody in here not born of a woman? I'm saying, everybody on earth, everybody in history, Moses, Elijah, Abraham, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That was a great man. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now we're talking about your status here. I don't think we should necessarily get into a moral comparison. And there's a lot more that could be said here. And I have to, to rush past it. But, but, but John preceded the great thing that God was doing. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Something is happening now. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven, so I put it in italics, this is a really tricky passage, and I'm just going to tell you the overall impact of it. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. People debate what that means, it's a translation issue, but the idea is that something has been happening with the kingdom from the days of John until now. Something new has happened. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. They were expecting Elijah to come. John's Elijah to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What he's saying is, and I'm, I'm keeping this brief on purpose, uh, but the big point we need to get here is that something new has happened, and everything before that was preliminary. Everything that's happened in history has been stage setting. It's been one long build up to now because I'm here. That's what Jesus thought about himself. He didn't think he was one among a number of great moral teachers. He thought he was the messenger of God come into the world. Not just, the, not just a messenger like John or Elijah, the messenger, the message itself was Jesus. But you have to have the ears to hear that kind of thing. And then he moves to talking to the people who have sat and listened to John and himself. He said, what shall I compare this generation to? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. There's those deeds again showing up. So what's the deal with all this? The idea is that John came. He was very different than Jesus. He was out there in the desert eating locust and honey. Right? Jesus comes and he goes to parties. And they both said, this people needs to repent. They both looked around at them and said, things have got to change here. And yet, in both cases, they were rejected. And they're like children saying, well, we did this, and you wouldn't play with this. We did that, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it with us. 
And what Jesus is getting at here is that the, the, the real problem with these people was not the packaging of the message. Do you know that people can find problems with anything they don't want to believe? He's too extreme. He's too weird. She's too lax. Here's the problem with unbelief. At the core of unbelief, despite all the window dressing it's given sometimes, at the core of unbelief is a problem with the human will. He said our hearts don't want it. And we a lot of times give a lot of different reasons to cloak what's there. But at the core of unbelief, people who turn away from God, is that their heart doesn't want it. People could give all kinds of reasons why they wouldn't follow John. And they come along with Jesus and they got all kinds of reasons why they wouldn't follow Jesus. And the truth is, as, as the scripture says, people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's what Jesus said. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. The, the crazy thing about this is he's naming cities that are, are right close to him. Right? He was living in Capernaum. He names Capernaum there. These other cities are not that far of a walk away. And they've seen so many mighty works. And he says, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these are paradigmatic enemies of Israel in the Hebrew history. And he said, if they had seen these kind of things, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for them than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For the mighty work, if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom. Everybody knows Sodom as the quintessential uh, place of evil and, and God's wrath in the Old Testament. If they had seen what you've seen, they would have repented and, and they would be on the earth to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And we just have to stop and we hear that and hear those strong words of Jesus recognizing that God considers the opportunities that people have. He takes into account what they've seen and what they've heard, and you just have to ask the question, what would he say to Irving? Because there's still plenty of sin to go around here, isn't there? There's still a message of repentance to be preached here, isn't there? And although we didn't live at the time of Jesus, I would say to you that there is plenty of evidence of the mighty power of Jesus in our world today. And the people who hear it should feel the force of Jesus' statement, repent. What if the people in Irving who refuse to repent are worse off than the people of Sodom because of the opportunity they've been given by God, the world we've been given to live in where Christ has influenced so much? It's just, it's just I put it out there for you to consider. Now I want to get to the, the invitation that we started talking about. At this time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, this is just a sudden prayer that Jesus offers up while he's teaching. 
He says, Father, he's just he's watching what happens. He says, Father, I thank you. You've hidden these things from, from the people who are wise and understanding. And, and we might just read between the lines a little bit and say, the people who think they're wise and understanding, if we really get it. Because Jesus was bringing in wisdom. He was the wisest by far. <laughs> he was the most understanding by far. And the people who listened to him would become wise and understanding. But he was not wise according to their expectations, not wise according to worldly training. And he says, thank you, God. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from those who think they're something. Now, I, I don't think he means to say God wants to keep good things from wise people or good things from people of understanding. No, in fact, he wants to give us understanding, but it's a different kind of understanding he brings. And these things, the things of Christ, will always be hidden from the people who think they have it figured out without him. The things of God will always be hidden from the people who think they can get it because they're smart. The th things of God will always be hidden from the people who think they can, they can get it because they are better off. They're socially higher up or they are more advanced in their studies and understanding. The people who think that somehow in their own self, by self-reliance, they can grasp these things. God has chosen not to work that way. And that's why, if you want to know Jesus, you don't need to go to Harvard. And thank God for that, right? Wouldn't that be sad if Jesus had come, like so many great intellectuals in the past, and tied up his teachings in a bunch of books you can't understand, and you need somebody to translate even though they're written in your own language? See, this was God's gracious will. It was his grace to the world to say, no, it's for the little children. Jesus loves the little children. And he loves the people who are like little children. In fact, he says this crazy thing, and I don't think we've even begun to get close to it a lot of times in our churches. Unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom. That means that we've got to radically reconsider how we're approaching everything. It's the childlike. And you know why that is? Again, this is not God's like, like drawing things from a hat up in heaven and being like, mm, give it to the childlike. <laughs> That's not the way it works. It's because pride is the fundamental opposition to everything of heaven. The fundamental thing about being in relationship with God is you realize he's a lot greater than you. And that he sent his son to divest himself of all of his power and glory until he took on the form of a human being and died the death of a slave. And he said, I came not to, to be served, but to serve. And he said, welcome the little children. Become like little children. That's how you have a relationship with God. And you can't get it through your uppityness. You can't get it through hanging out with the people who are high echelon people of society. It's for the poor, the meek, the lowly, for the nobodies. This was God's gracious will. That's why Jesus says, thank you. Thank you that you've done this. You've done something that nobody else does. People come and they have something great and they offer it to the wealthy. 
They offer it to the famous. They offer it to the powerful. God sends his son and he says, Here, you widows, you orphans, you people pushed aside by the religious leaders, come. That's the thanksgiving that he gives. And then he goes on to say this thing. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He's saying, I've got it, guys. I mean, imagine that. Imagine being a person who's walked in the world and who knows. Now, now people have said things like this, but they're... I was about to say a word that I might not should say. They're not smart. <laughs> in front of the children, I might not just say what I was going to call them. They're, they are uh, very, very foolish people, and they end up getting into bad trouble and getting other people into bad trouble. But Jesus actually knew this was true. And he said, I've got something with God that nobody else does. You can't get this anywhere else. The Father knows me. I know the Father. There's an intimate relationship there. Nobody else gets this like I do. And I get to choose to reveal the Father to people. Now, now let me say to you that one of the fundamental things we have to be doing as followers of Jesus, learning from him, is letting him reveal the Father to us. I didn't know this for a long time. If we don't let Jesus show us the Father, our whole religious life is going to go off. I mean, these were people who already believed in God. He's not dealing with a bunch of atheists or agnostics. These people know God, yet they haven't had him revealed like Christ wanted to reveal him. And this is what we see in Matthew, this revelation of the Father. This is what we need if we're going to walk with Christ, is to let him reveal the Father to us. Let me show you how Martin Luther, Luther said some things he probably hate, but other things he said really good. This is one of the things he said really well. This is what it means to have a proper grasp of the gospel. That is of the overwhelming goodness of God, which neither prophet nor apostle nor angel was ever able fully to express, and which no heart could adequately fathom or marvel at. This is the great fire of the love of God for us, whereby the heart and conscience become happy, secure, and content. This is what preaching the Christian faith means. And I want to tell you that is the Father Jesus came to reveal, to reveal the overwhelming goodness of God, the burning fire of God's love for us, and the son gets to choose to whom he's going to reveal him. By the way, this is, this is one of the reasons that religious pluralism is a problem. Religious pluralism is a great challenge for the church today that says, you know, there's no one way to God. You can go through Jesus, or you can go through Buddha, or you can go through Muhammad. Just find your way. Every way is equal as long as you love people and you're nice to people. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say it doesn't matter what you think about God. 
It does matter what you think about God. And Jesus reveals him. And you cannot know God. Look, well, the reason we say that, that people need to know Christ is not because we just want to say our way is better than your way. And we've got it and you don't, so shape up. The reason we say people need to know Christ is because this is salvation to know God. And that the Father, the Father is who Jesus said he is. And without this knowledge, people are dying their life is going astray because they don't know the Father like Jesus came to reveal him. Imagine what Jesus could have said then. I get to reveal the Father. That's for me to do. So, sign up. I'll take applications. See, that's not what he says. He gives the greatest invitation that's ever been spoken in human language. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's looking out at these people who are burdened, and he sees their burdens, the burdens that the religious people had put on them, the burdens that Satan himself had put on them, the burdens that living in a world where there's just brokenness all around had put on them, People are carrying burdens. They were carrying them when Jesus looked at them. They're carrying them still today. And Jesus looks around at these people in compassion and says, Come to me! Not because I'm going to put you into a work program to show that you're good enough for God. Come to me with these burdens because I want to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you now. That's not, that's not egg yolk, okay? That's a different thing. Right? Take my yoke upon you. One way that, that a yoke, uh, there's a couple different ways you could think of it, but as a um, way they train animals is what I, I've heard, uh, where you put, you put an ox or horse or something, you put one here, you put an older, experienced one, and then you get a young one with it, and they yoke them together with this instrument. And then they learn, and at first, the, the horse or the ox, the young one won't know what it's doing. It'll take out and try to do it all, but the old one will just lag behind. Then it'll get tired, and the old one will pull ahead, and it'll have to learn to keep up with it. Over time, though, it figures it out because it's taken that yoke upon it, and it's learned to walk with the older farm animal, right? That's what Jesus is inviting us to do here with him. Take his yoke upon us. Get right beside him. Get in close fellowship with Jesus. And learn him guys when we talk about discipleship here at the church we didn't make this up and we're not talking about it because this is just our, our thing <laughs> we're talking about it because of the invitation Jesus gives and the invitation to rest is through a special educational program not like a school you're thinking of but it's an educational program it's it's walking with Christ and learning. It's the word for disciple. The word learn there is the word you get for disciple. It's the same root word. We learn from Jesus, for he is the greatest teacher. He's not standing over us with a whip. He's gentle and lowly in heart. And as we learn from him, we find rest for our souls. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Man. I want to read to you the way Eugene Peterson phrases this in his 
the message paraphrase. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Maybe you're here today, and you're hearing this invitation in a fresh way. Maybe you're burned out on religion. Maybe you came and thought you were supposed to receive something and then realized that it was false advertising. Maybe it's because you came to religion instead of coming to Jesus. Maybe you thought if you attended church or just said your prayers in a certain way, without the Father being near and revealed to you like Jesus reveals him, maybe you thought that was going to work See, that doesn't work. There might be a lot of good things that, that you're, you're doing, but ultimately they will not work outside of a specific intentional process of walking in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we'll learn how to rest. We'll learn how to live. Man, I was, I was watching last night uh, this Mike Tyson biopic. Um, on TV, and as I watched it, it sounds trite to say it, but I just said to Olivia, man, Mike Tyson needs Jesus. Looked at that man struggling with so much, done so many bad things, and, and still you can just see the pain in that man's face. And you watch how he's messed up his life over and over and turned to dry wells seeking water. And I said to her, man, Mike Tyson needs Jesus. And I, my heart goes out to that man. I have a love for him. I don't want to fight him. <laughs> but I love him. And, and, and I watched that show, and, and everybody on there, you know, all these different analysts are speaking, and they're saying, uh, talking about his demons and the fight that he has. And nobody dares to say, could Jesus do something for him? They'd get scorned off the television set if they said anything about, let's try Jesus for that man we're all looking at and wanting to help. And yet that is the heritage we have received in this world. Jesus Christ as the answer, as the rest. And we don't even know how to, to say it to people anymore. We've stopped offering that invitation. My brother had a friend who, who uh, my younger brother Matt had a friend, he workout partner with him, and uh, I heard him speak at CR years ago in, in uh, Louisiana. He had been in prison, I think, for murder, or it, it, I think it happened in a fight or something. I don't remember all the details, but um, he eventually 
came to Christ in prison. Said He said to, to God, you know, I have messed up my life so bad trying it my way. I guess I'll try it your way. You can't do any worse than I've done. And uh, immediately things started to happen. Changes started happening in his life. And, and he found joy. And he said he was running around the prison yard one day. And he just stopped and he started laughing. And he said, Lord, look at me here in this prison yard. Here I am, locked up, and this is the happiest I've ever been in my life. Because Jesus had given him rest. That's what he wants to give to you too. Are you worn out? Are you guilty because of your past? Are you burdened with bitterness and anger in your heart? Are you striving to fill your life with things that cannot feel it? Jesus will give you rest. And today, you're invited to come to him. When you come to this table today, come to the one who said, my yoke is easy and my burden's light. Come to the one who says, I see you, the burdens you're carrying, and I want to give you rest. And take his yoke upon you today. God bless it to you. <clears throat>